You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome, everybody, uh, tonight. Uh, I'm sure you agree with me. We are all uh, fantastically lucky uh, to have an enormously exciting opportunity uh, to hear about what is clearly the most important issue in the UK election, uh, as uh, reflected in the press. Uh, But seriously, um, I think that everybody in this room understands the incredible importance of having this discussion. And so we welcome you all and welcome our speakers. Uh, I want to start by thanking uh, Bond and its terrific new CEO, Tamsin Barton. Uh, Bond and ODI are hosting this event uh, together. Uh, I just returned uh, a few days ago from a trip to Uganda and Kenya. And that trip reminded me of two things that I wanted to share briefly with you tonight. Uh, the first thing is that democracy is not some goal that you pass. Uh, it is actually a way of life. It is a daily set of decisions, uh, both of citizens and their leaders, uh, to do the right thing, uh, to suppress self and ego and the will to power uh, to the will of the people. Um, and uh, we are here tonight for what is a hallowed democratic purpose, um, and that is to debate forcefully yet respectfully uh, what I do believe are some of the most important issues of our age and particularly how the United Kingdom and its development and foreign policy and national security policy should look and be constructed to meet those challenges going forward. Uh, The second thing is that, of course, when in Uganda and Kenya, I was reminded of how incredibly important and how much important work there is yet to be done to achieve our shared (coughs) dreams of ending extreme poverty, addressing Uh, racial, gender, and other types of inequality, um, and the challenges of climate change and pandemics and conflict uh, that beset so many people still uh, today. Um, And I can say that there are few forces in the world uh, uh, that equal the amount of good that UK aid does around the world and has done for decades. Um, In fact, I had the opportunity to visit a rural clinic with a 9% HIV caseload. That's 9% of the entire population of their catchment area. (laughs) People who are still dying every single day of malaria, even though it only costs about $2 uh, to treat a case of malaria. Women and children dying in childbirth in the district virtually every day. Um, And there I stood beside, I think it's on my Twitter feed, a truck emblazoned with UK aid, um, and some great young people who are out there working uh, with women in this clinic, trying to give them the choices that they deserve over their lives and empowerment and reproductive cycles, things that we all know uh, are sometimes uh, at threat in this time. Um, And I believe, even though it sometimes uh, pains me to say this as an American, if you can't tell by my accent, um, that the UK you know, really does stand out uh, in its peers, among its peers, um, as a standard bearer uh, for the values and issues uh, that propel the debate around foreign assistance. Um, and so when we talk about UK development policy, we talk about something uh, all across the spectrum that has an incredibly ha- proud history 
um, both for the British public and very, very real impact on the lives of people around the world. Uh, and it's a joy to be in a place uh, like London and like the UK where this debate has such meaning and such import. Uh, but there is a real debate, and I think we will hear it tonight. There's a debate about the purposes of aid, who should spend that aid, what it should be spent on, um, and how we should think about how it meets the objectives um, of the British people. Uh, so I know that you will join me um, in welcoming four very dedicated public servants who have given their time, uh, some straight off the campaign trail, uh, or not even off in, in Patrick's case. Uh, thank you for joining us from Scotland um, uh, to, uh, to join us tonight for this important uh, discussion. So uh, the last thing I will say before handing over to my colleague Ishbel um, is that uh, if you are joining us online, welcome. Uh, if you want to tweet about this, we're using the hashtag GlobalDev uh, tonight. Um, and without further ado, I'd like to hand over to our Director of Communications, uh, Ishbel Matheson, uh, for the rest of the show. Brilliant. Thank you, Alex. Um, so just to introduce our panel, um, and as Alex said, some of them straight from the campaign trail. Uh, so Andrew Mitchell, a Conservative parliamentary candidate for Sutton Caulfield, former Secretary of State for International Development. Baroness Sheehan, a Liberal Democrat's Lord spokesperson uh, for international development. Lord Collins of Highbury, um, Labour Lord spokesperson for international development. And Patrick Grady, prospective parliamentary candidate in Glasgow <laughs> North and also the SNP's spokesperson on international development at Westminster. So thank you very much for joining us. So the way we're going to run this is basically um, each of our four panellists will have a chance to do their three-minute pitch to you on international development and the key policies of their uh, political parties. We have a uh, Eileen with the three-minute bell, so if they run over, um, that is a signal to, to wrap up. Um, but then there'll be questions, there'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions. I'll have a few questions that I want to ask, but I really hope that we can make this as interactive and uh, involve you and, and get as many answers to your questions as possible. So um, just to be totally on equal footing, we had a bit of a, we drew lots in the room uh, in the corridor opposite. Um, and so our speaker order uh, this evening is Baroness Sheehan, Lord Collins, Andrew Mitchell, and then Patrick Brady. So Baroness Sheehan, and I should say Twitter, the Twitter handle is uh, hashtag global dev. It's up there as uh, various other hashtags are. So uh, please do tweet. And if you're online, you can ask me questions on the iPad and I will also convey them to the panel as well if you're watching online. So uh, Baroness Sheehan, do you want to give us your three minute pitch on liberal democrat policies on international development? Excellent, thank you, Isabel. <coughs> Um, so I'd like to use the time available to me to highlight some headline issues that I think will be important in the next parliament. And let me start with refugees. People desperately seeking safety, security and a decent life. The moral imperative to address the push factors is very clear and bond members' commitment to this is to be applauded. From disease eradication, investment, in education, particularly for women and girls, investment, um, emphasis on family planning, 
health infrastructure, and much, much more. And I thank you. And you don't need me to tell you that the refugees arriving in Europe are only the tip of the iceberg. Over 65 million people worldwide have been forcibly displaced. So addressing push factors so that people can stay in their own countries where they would much prefer to be is not only a moral imperative, but one that benefits us all. And this last point must be trumpeted loudly and clearly because we are under attack by the Rottweilers in the tabloid press. Politicians need you. We need you to tell your stories, especially when the Secretary of State remains silent in the face of attacks on proven projects such as Yenya, the Ethiopian Spice Girls, and cash transfers. We need more reports like the recent ODI briefing paper, AIDS, Exports and Employment in the UK. Thank you, Dirk. Um, showing us that UK aid led to the creation of 12,000 jobs in the UK. So let's put it out there. If the press don't take it up, let's use social media. DFID must shoulder its responsibility too. It must be open and accountable as it outsources more and more aid spending to other government departments and CDC. But I must be clear, I will oppose any redefinition of aid that removes focus on pro-poor policies. Government too has a responsibility to lead efforts to destroy the international architecture that allows individuals and corporations to squirrel away ill-gotten gains into secret bank accounts. I hope we can address important issues like protecting natural environments and climate change in the Q&A. But now I'd like to end by saying how proud I am that it was Michael Moore, a Liberal Democrat, whose private members bill enshrined the 0.7% into UK law. And our challenge now, in the face of the harm a hard Brexit will bring to our economy, will be to defend it and use it to meet our commitments to meeting the UN's sustainable development goals. Not only because it strengthens Britain's influence abroad, but because it is morally right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. Or Collins. Right. Well, I'd like to start by saying I welcome the political consensus on the 0.7, but we haven't gone far enough to persuade many of the public. The fact is that protecting this budget while others are cut cannot be detached from the public's anxieties about life here at home. So we should make the case at every opportunity and every day, sadly not being made uh, in this current campaign, to make the argument that development is also in Britain's best interest, better off growing and trading within a strong global economy with a sustainable climate, supported governments and secure borders. Poverty and bad governance are still holding too many countries and their people back. Many women, disabled people, and too many minorities are discriminated against and denied access to their fair share of goods, services, and opportunities. Economic growth 
has the potential to be the engine to drive change. But growth without jobs, inclusion, healthcare, education, human rights, growth without power won't deliver for the many. The universal nature of the SDGs and the principle of leave no one behind are vital tools. Decent jobs is a cornerstone of the labor movement and a vital part of goal eight in the SDGs. Yet DFID's recent review of this made no mention of trade unions. Under labor, human rights will be at the heart of our work, civil and political. Labor will reinstate the Civil Society Challenge Fund because by supporting trade unions, women's associations and other civil society groups, we can give them a voice in mounting their own advocacy challenges to their governments in defense of human rights, including workers' rights. We will work to tighten the rules governing corporate accountability for abuses in the global supply chain. Labor will work through how best we can achieve a fairer tax system for the world's poorest people and countries. Labor will also take decisive action on tax havens, including crown dependencies and overseas territories, ensuring a public register of owners. This generation has the power to eliminate aid dependency for good by empowering the powerless. That's Labour's vision, and that's what we will do. Thank you. <laughs> Andrew Mitchell. Well, thank you very much. Unlike my two colleagues who uh, don't have to fight an election because they're in the House of Lords, Patrick and I have to uh, do so. And I've rushed down from the West Midlands, which is probably one of the most interesting areas of the country in the forthcoming election in terms of results. And uh, I'm very pleased to have been able to put away my blue rosette and to be in the rather stiller waters of this discussion. And, of course, it's right to say at the outset that this is a British policy, above all. Uh, we like to feel that uh, we built on the work that Tony Blair particularly had uh, done. If you like, we put some extra stories on the building, as I tried to explain on what I thought was a very good program on the BBC on Sunday, uh, on Monday night, and which is being repeated this Sunday as an analysis of, uh, of, of aid. I'm extremely proud that it was my party, uh, perhaps against the expectations of many in this room, that stood by its promise to the poorest people in the world and introduced the 0.7. And I'm particularly proud uh, that at a time of great austerity in Britain, it was a Conservative-led government that, notwithstanding that austerity, stuck by its promise to the poorest and the weakest people uh, in the world. So the 0.7 uh, was the right thing to do, uh, but of course it has to be uh, defended. And uh, one of the reasons why I was a Remainer during the referendum was because as you look around the world at the great problems that are coming, and that are here, uncontrolled migration, protectionism, climate change, the pandemic, which Bill Gates said when he was in London just a couple of weeks ago, he was virtually certain would happen during our uh, lifetime. Uh, uh, all these, uh, these things that are crowding in need more national cooperation and less, uh, 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 more international cooperation and less nationalism. And narrow nationalism is on the march from uh, Moscow down to Cairo. 
And uh, so that was why I, I didn't vote to leave the European Union. But now that we are leaving, we have to make sure that we really focus on the international organizations and the sinews, some of which need reform, and Britain's been quite open about that, to make sure that we really make progress on tackling the obscene levels of poverty and opportunity, the discrepancies which so disfigure our uh, world today. The Conservative Party, if re-elected, will continue to focus on tackling conflict. It is conflict above all which condemns people to uh, a life of uh, misery and wretched conditions, as Paul Collier has always said. Conflict is development in reverse, and it's right that it should be absolutely at the top of what we seek to tackle, but also uh, building prosperity. And when I dealt with the reforms of CDC, I made uh, certain your lordship, that decent working conditions and respect for trades unions was included in the work that they have to, uh, the, the instructions which they are given. And thirdly, we have to ensure, and this is the most important point, that we demonstrate results, because a sceptical public will uh, say that it is better to spend the money at home and not overseas unless we make clear to them that we are really getting good results. So in my judgment, focusing on results, standing up for what we do, explaining what we do, is incredibly important in sustaining Britain's leadership uh, in this area uh, in the forthcoming next five years. And finally, to Patrick Grady in Scotland. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for the invitation to speak, and I, I hope the technology lasts for the full hour. Um, the SNP has always been um, and always had a very internationalist and global outlook. It actually says in the party's constitution that the independent Scotland we hope to achieve, the sovereignty of the people of Scotland uh, and its parliament, will be limited only by agreements freely entered into with other countries for the protection uh, of the environment and the promotion of world peace. Um, and I'm proud that that is represented in the manifesto uh, that we launched yesterday. I think it's probably the most uh, comprehensive uh, set of commitments that we've ever made going into a Westminster election on uh, aspects of international development, starting, of course, with a reaffirmation of uh, the 0.7% commitment, um, which of course should be delivered by a standalone Department for International Development. Um, we recognise uh, in the manifesto and our policies, of course, the central role of the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, the, goal, the Global Goals for Sustainable Development, both at home uh, and overseas. And uh, the First Minister herself uh, personally committed Scotland to playing its part to achieve those goals uh, in July of last year. Uh, the manifesto reflects uh, the importance of women's rights in development uh, and the broader human rights agenda as well, and makes particular mention uh, of the establishment of an LGBTI envoy to tackle precisely some of the issues that the other uh, spokespeople have raised. There's quite a comprehensive section on ethical trade um, and the importance of fair uh, taxation. Um, and uh, I, I hope uh, there'll be a chance to discuss some of that as well, and that's going to be particularly important in the context of um, Brexit, as we seek to, as the UK seeks to establish new trading relationships with uh, different countries around the world. Uh, and humanitarian response, especially in the context of increasing conflict, um, as others have said, and indeed of climate change, uh, making sure our humanitarian response is, is fit for purpose. Uh, and then particularly how we deal with, with refugees from many of those conflict and climate change 
situations. We want to see the full implementation of the Dubs Amendment. We want to see the UK take its fair share of refugees. And we want to make sure that refugees, when they come to this country, are welcome, that they have the right to work and that uh, austerity policies uh, don't lead to the destitution that so many are experiencing. So, as I say, I think we have a comprehensive set of policies that will hold the UK government to account, if we, especially if we maintain our position as the third party. Um, I hope there can continue to be cross-party consensus uh, on these issues. And the, the question about the definition of aid, which I think we'll come back to, um, is going to be a very important part of that debate. But as I say, I'm proud uh, that we've been able to champion these issues in the previous uh, parliament, and I sincerely hope we can continue in the next. That's great. Thank you, uh, Patrick. And thank you all for sticking so admirably to the bell. Uh, and just as a kind of note, you're, most of the people in the room are looking at this um, document, which is ODI's summary of the main parties' policies on international development. So you'll see a lot of that in there. Um, and it's obviously on our website to be downloaded as well in future days. Um, but before we go to the audience, I just want to quickly pick up on something that I think uh, you mentioned, Baroness Ian, and also Patrick Brady, about this definition of aid, because it's obviously come out as a point of difference between the, the parties. Um, so yes, commitment to 0.7%, but in the Tory manifesto, um, looking to um, relook at the definition of aid according to OECD rules. So maybe, Patrick, just to pick up on that point with you, why do you think this is an important issue for you? Well, the, the whole point of aid and the, the whole point of the 0.7% target is that it's something, it's, a, it's an international target. All the OECD countries signed up to it over 40 years ago. So if it's going to be effective, if it's going to meet... Uh, the internationally agreed global goals for sustainable development, then it, we all have to uh, be singing, at least to some extent, from the same hymn sheet. And so it's very important that, that the definitions of aid are internationally agreed. Um, and I think it would be concerning if the UK government was to unilaterally decide that it had a different definition of what aid was allowed to be spent on. I'm I'm you know, relaxed about the idea that uh, multilateral institutions, whether it's the, the OECD or the United Nations, uh, come to a consensus on what kind of aid spending is needed in the modern world. That's, again, 0.7% came from an analysis of what was needed at that time to lift people out of poverty, to meet the, the equivalent goals that existed in those days and, and still, you know, largely uh, stand still to be met. Um, but it... it, 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 it that, that multilateral approach, I think, is is very uh, is very important. Andrew Mitchell, obviously, this was something that's in the Conservative manifesto. Um, can you just maybe tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that? Why the need to kind of um, break with this, you know, established consensus? Well, I have written a piece with General Law Richards for in the Daily Telegraph. In case any of you are interested, uh, trying to flesh out this a bit. Um, let's be clear: the commitment to the point seven is governed by the rules, because clearly, if there aren't rules, the 0.7 will be plundered by stronger government departments. So you have to have rules to protect the budget. But there are aspects of the rules which can be tweaked. And rather, my advice to my many friends in the development world is rather than say no to what is a Tory commitment to renegotiate an aspect of these rules with the OECD, we should get involved in seeing if we can improve them. Now, there have been changes to the OECD rules uh, in recent years, 
The particular area which I think could do with improvement is in tackling conflict. And as I tried to set out with Lord Richards in this article today, there are, there's a very tight definition of, of what anti-conflict or conflict resolution expenditure is eligible under the point seven and what is not. And I think that uh, definition needs to be tweaked. And rather than throw our hands up in horror at the suggestion from the, the Prime Minister in the manifesto that we're going to do that, I think we should engage to see whether or not there are aspects of this where Britain does not benefit as we should from the definition. And the example I give is that if you look at the uh, action that was taken in Sierra Leone or that the French took in Mali, in terms of development gain, there are aspects of what Britain and France, and it is really only Britain and France which has the ability to do this, can do uh, through the United Nations, uh, which has a massive effect, beneficial effect, on the position of some of the most desperate people in the world. And if the UK can't get international agreement to change the, the, the rules, we will go along, alone, we will set our own definition of aid. Is that, is that how we should read well, the, what, what's in the manifesto? What the manifesto says is that we will try and renegotiate it, and if, if we don't manage to renegotiate, then we will seek to amend the law. Now, uh, my view is that we should uh, negotiate with our colleagues, the 30 people on the OECD, to get these minor tweaks made. And I'm pretty confident that that will be possible. So I don't expect that it would be necessary for Britain to amend the law. But clearly, in that situation, that would be a matter for Parliament to decide. Um, Andrew, I hear what you're saying about redefining it. But my fear is that at the moment, as things stand, and as ODA is defined, that it is already um, quite difficult to trace what has happened to some of the sums of money that are going into the Prosperity Fund, that are going into CSSF, and that are going to CDC. And in the case of CDC, huge sums of money are now going to be classified as ODA, and yet CDC is not formally required to measure the impact of any of that money. I mean, that is my fear, and that once we have a re uh, redefinition, that we lose all accountability, all transparency. And I say this as someone who put a question to the Minister in the Lords about the lack of a website for CSSF. There isn't even a website. We've been promised one time after time, and yet it does not exist. You will understand my concerns. Well, first of all, you know, the ODA stuff is absolutely transparent. Britain has to satisfy the OECD DAC committee that we, that we have spent the money in accordance with the point seven. So we should be very clear about that. Also, DFID's expenditure, frankly, all this stuff in the press about how no one knows what DFID's expenditure is. DFID is, in my judgment, one of the most, if not the most, transparent department in Whitehall when it comes to setting out. We put everything on the website, or DFID puts everything on the website above £500. Um, it, is, it is actually quite easy to follow what DFID is doing. And when it comes to waste, I think that the evidence seems to me to be that there is less waste in DFID than there is in other government departments. That we're not making that case sufficiently strong enough because DFID money is highly uh, scrutinised with ICAI and the select committees. Uh, but we're not making that case publicly. So, so just on 
that, um, just on this point of international uh, redefinition of the rules, Patrick, where, where is Labour on this? Well, very clear. I mean, you know, we've been very consistent in terms of international agreement. The 0.7 target that we meet were, were number six globally uh, in, in, in spending. But if you don't have rules, which I think we're all agreed on, then it becomes a nonsense. You need rules. And the idea that this, you know, that a future Conservative government will come back... I mean, this is one of the reasons why people have always said to me uh, when we had the debate in Parliament about the 0.7 bill, well, the good thing about that act is the governments can't do things without now coming back to Parliament. And I think the Conservative Party would have great difficulty in undermining the rules that we're all totally committed to. There is an issue about uh, the effectiveness of spending, where we spend it, and I agree totally with Andrew that, you know, security, peace and security, without that, you can't have development. And so there is a case, uh, you know, to ensure that that... There may be a case for internationally tweaking those things, but at the moment I'm totally committed to the rules as they are. Okay, so maybe we can just get a few questions uh, from the audience, either on this or, or other things that were picked up in the initial um, presentations. So this side of the room seems to be more active. I'll come to this side of the room later. Uh, so two in the front row and one at the back. Uh, uh, just say, yeah, just yeah. say who you are and brief points, please. Okay. Yeah. Khalid uh, Nadeem, South Asian, Middle East Forum. Uh, what I'd like to hear from all the spokespeople here is, have you any ideas to energize the, the Middle East peace process. I mean, Donald Trump said he's going to energize it with his son-in-law, but is there a role for, for Britain? And, um, and can we see a, a situation where there's a little bit more aid going to, to, for the refugees in Lebanon? I mean, the situation there is quite bad. Just a few months ago, we held a, a forum on Lebanon in, in Parliament, with, including Stephen Gittins and Tom Brake. And and it was quite sad the way, for instance, Palestinian refugees have been forgotten. Okay. And they've been forgotten in Lebanon and in Jordan. Okay, yep. Gideon Rabinovitz from Oxfam GB. A uh, question for Andrew Mitchell, if I may. Um, thank you for mentioning your article, in, in, which was very interesting to read. In, in the last year alone, we, the, the OECD have agreed new changes to the aid rules, which were pushed uh, largely by the UK along with others which allow uh, military activities which are contributing directly to humanitarian and developmental activities to count as ODA. And the idea of that is to draw a line between activities which are developmental and those that aren't. Aren't you worried that if we allow these new flexibilities, we could see um, military activities which at the end of the day are very, very expensive and it's hard to identify what is developmental and what is not, leading to diversion of lots of very significant levels of ODA away from developmental spend. Isn't that a significant risk with, with the types okay. of proposals you're Brilliant. looking at? Thanks, Gideon. And there was one at the back, I think. Yep. Thanks. I'm Najithoi. Also to Andrew Mitchell. Um, and touching on the themes of how aid is spent and waste, um, what are your thoughts on the, and isn't there a need to change the current model of DFID relying very heavily on for-profit private contractors to deliver aid, um, especially given, for example, the ASI scandal? They received under a Tory-led DFID 
over 500 million pounds in the last six years, and we've seen their standards of reporting are less than high. Okay, Thank great. You. Thanks. So, Andrew, just to wrap up this question of OECD rules, just maybe pick that one off since we've just been talking about it, about this flexibility um, issue. It might be mission creep away from, uh, you know, the, the intention of, of aid and international development. I, I am entirely with you on the importance of protecting the proper use of aid. But I think that if the development community says we're going to draw a line in the sand and say no change to the OECD rules, that would be a tragedy because I think then the system could break. And I think what we have to do is we have to get involved in working out what is a genuinely incremental development action which the military may take which should come in part from the development budget. And I think that's a good debate where there's some very brilliant people in the development world who will be able to engage in that debate and make sure we get it right. And I think, I think I've tried to set this out in this article, but the, the, I think there's enough on that. So, so just picking up the other question directed at you on aid being spent yes. but not on the private sector. And also maybe, uh, Ray, you can come in because I know your manifesto also talks about um, the use of private mm. contractors in mm. DFID, yeah? Yes. I mean, the, the uh, spend that DFID has, which is spent by other departments, is, should be subject to the same scrutiny. And actually, the current Secretary of State said that it isn't good enough for the Foreign Office, for example, to spend money on the looking at the mating habits of the flatfish in Madagascar because they choose for foreign policy reasons to do that. And then when the press quite rightly go after them, they say it's nothing to do with us, it's to do with DFID. That is not correct. And the current Secretary of State said that she would name and shame other departments that do that. We have to make sure there's the same level of scrutiny over aid that is spent by other departments as is spent yeah. by DFID. That's why the ICAI, much to the irritation of other departments... But I, I, I'm to, I'm, yeah, I'll come to that. Yeah. So that's why the ICAI looks at all expenditure, not just expenditure from DFID. It looks at expenditure the other 25% by the departments. Now, I think that actually the contractors have had a pretty raw deal because what has happened here is this. Uh, Secretaries of State come and they say, we have got to help South Sudan, the government of the South Sudan, to erect an anti-corruption mechanism which stops these fighters from disavowing the modern methods of governance. And so the DFID says, well, we haven't got the people to do it. We'll have to put out a contract. So what happens then is DFID puts out a contract and people bid. And uh, ASI have bid for some of these contracts, and they've won them in competition. And I actually think that then, for government ministers to say, goodness me, the Daily Mail's got hold of this, uh, they can swing, rather than saying, look, we let this contract, we must therefore justify it. And I'm not saying, I'm not getting engaged in whether ASI did good stuff or, or not. That's for them to address. And there may well have been faults, and those faults should be rectified. But in the end, as a development community or as a government, if we go out to the private sector and we say, we have this requirement, this is the contract, this is the specification, bid against this, and if in competition they win it so that the government has sought to ensure that there's proper value for money for taxpayers, then I don't think it's good enough just to leave these people to swing in the wind when the Daily Mail goes after them. What about if uh, Labour comes to government, would you allow private sector contractors to bid for contracts and differ? Well, of, of course we would. But I think one of the biggest concerns that we've expressed, which is why the manifesto refers to this, is the capacity of the department, uh, which has had over many years huge amount of expertise, to actually maintain and monitor these contracts. 
and to actually properly evaluate their impact. And I think Andrew is right. You know, the scrutiny from ICAI is absolutely vital across the board. But we are now in a situation where we've got external consultants monitoring private contractors. And that cannot be good for our uh, development spend, ensuring that it is effective and directed. So this isn't about private sector bad, public sector good. This is about using the best resources and making sure that they're properly evaluated and monitored and delivered. Value for money has to be with such you know, controversy around this idea of how we're spending development has to be absolutely in the forefront of our mind. So let's swing into the um, question about aid for refugees in Lebanon, uh, levels of sufficiency there, and also that other um, small question of any ideas to reinvigorate the Middle East peace process. Patrick, do you want to just ha um, add some thoughts on those? Oh, thanks, yes. I <laughs> Bring bring me into soft peace in the Middle East. Um, thanks. Um, <laughs> or you can pick up the previous I mean, points of those yeah, the, the I mean, things yeah, yeah, you want course. to say on those. Uh, well, I, I mean, you know that 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 has to be uh, again uh, multilateral, uh, both sides coming to the table, um, uh, a consensus based UN led two state uh, solution, and it, and it, and it's it, it is crucial in many ways to to many of the other conflicts um, and. Uh, crises across the region. I would agree with the points about support in uh, Lebanon, for particularly for people not in uh, formal security camps. I actually have a or had a, a constituent who, who runs a project supporting uh, Palestinian refugees in uh, the Lebanon and that kind of support for, for grassroots organisations, particularly faith-based organisations and the role of civil society in providing that kind of support on the ground is, is very important, not just through the multilateral agencies. I thought the point uh, that Gideon raised from, from Oxfam was, was very important. The, the government has a habit, the UK government has had a habit of double counting uh, money that it's spending towards the 0.7% target, also towards its 2% NATO commitment. Um, and now there may be times within the OECD rules where that is technically permitted, but I think when the government champions the fact that it's meeting these two targets, um, most people don't think that kind of uh, double counting is going ahead. Um, and in fact, frankly, it was a surprise to members. Some of Andrew's colleagues on the, on the Defence Select Committee were quite surprised to find that was happening. Um, so I, I think that the less of that, uh, you know, the, the 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 better. Well, it's 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 it was something I pursued uh, quite a bit during the last um, Parliament, I, and 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 likewise then spending by um, by other government departments as well. I mean, it's it's the UK government's stated priority to increase uh, the amount of ODA that is spent by other departments. Um, so if that is going to continue, then it's absolutely right uh, that there's full scrutiny both by Parliament and uh, the the ICI and so on. Shiam, uh, Middle East peace process, okay. refugees. I, I noticed that in your manifesto you have um, commitments to take mm. in 50,000 Syrian refugees and unaccompanied children. Sure. Um, I will come on to that, but can I just uh, pick up on conflict resolution, mm -hmm. the point that Andrew you were making? And, and I think it's really important that before we talk about conflict resolution, we put the two sides, the same coin together and that's arms uh, proliferation. Um, we have a government who's happy to sell arms to Saudi Arabia, uh, a repressive regime. 
and its record in Yemen, where it is using the arms that we have sold it to bomb civilians there and creating huge humanitarian disaster, is really reprehensible. We need a policy that's going to outlaw sale of arms to regimes like Saudi Arabia and on the Foreign Office's list. And so I think that's the first thing to say. Um, the Middle East. The Middle East, I, mean, I, I don't have a solution, I'm sorry, Khalid, um, to the Middle East. I wish I did. I think it is the root of so many of the problems that we face today uh, that emanate from the region. Um, but what I will say is that the violence between Israeli and Palestinians must stop. Um, Israel must stop building settlements. I think without that, um, it, we aren't going to be able to move forward. They are illegal. Uh, every country has recognized them as illegal, and yet we continue to buy products from the settlements. Um, is that right? Is that wrong? You make up your own mind. I think the humanitarian treatment of Palestinians, I was in Palestine in February actually, I think I, was, I thought I was pretty well informed about the issues until I went there and saw for myself the scale of the ritual humiliation that civilians are subjected to. And I just think that that is something that needs, that's where I, the little bit that I can do in my position is like where I'd like to focus on, is trying to alleviate some of those daily hardships that Palestinians face. I'm sorry, I don't have another solution or any, anything further, really, that I, can, I think I personally can do. But a two-state solution mm -hmm. is, I think, the way forward. Um, we need both parties to get together. Okay, so we can have some more questions can from I the just audience. Yeah, of course. On, I mean, obviously, I agree on the Middle East side. I particularly want to sort of refer to the fact of the support we're giving in Jordan and Lebanon. And actually, the government can be, uh, you know, congratulated for their response in terms of the refugee crisis. But I do think that it's important we understand that that support that's now needed is much longer term. And if we don't give that support and maintain that support on an ongoing basis, it won't only be the refugees that will suffer. It will be countries like the Lebanon and Jordan that will be pulled down uh, as well. So I think uh, that's really important. And one final point, just you know, picking up this whole point about uh, the scrutiny. I... I'm disappointed that the government have not done enough to bring the SDGs into the debate in Parliament about how we evaluate the effectiveness of aid. I, I think if we were to do that, then there would be a better understanding of you know, those principles of not leaving anyone behind and also the universality of them. And good governance and peace are absolutely vital elements to delivering development. And then I'll, I'll take some more questions. Well, just a couple of points. On, on the Middle East peace process, I, like um, her ladyship, I don't have a solution on that. But I do, I do remember, I do remember, you know, when Ireland looked so intransigent that people, people used to quote Jerry Fitt, MP, who used to say, if you think you know the solution to the problem of Ireland, you're ill-informed. 
So, and I think, you know, we must maintain an optimism that at some point this dreadful conflict, which, as someone, one of my colleagues said, poisons the whole well of international opinion in the Middle East, at some point progress will be made. And I think in all our different ways, we have to try and bring forward that date. On, on um, the point that was made about Lebanon, we have, Britain has been quite good about funding uh, re refugees in Lebanon. Of course, in Lebanon, they're not in camps. They're, in, they're in, with a community. And, and Britain has provided more support for Syrian refugees in Syria and in Lebanon and Jordan particularly, but also in Iraq and Turkey, than the whole of the rest of the EU put together. And my, my frustrations with that, I suppose, are that we don't do more, for example, to educate all the children, because the one thing about living in a refugee camp, ghastly, though everyone here will know it is, is you have got a captive audience of children. You can make sure they have an education, you can do training for young people, and you can do more to stimulate uh, them earning in the surrounding economy. And supporting Jordan, I think, is incredibly important. This country that is, I think, the third poorest country in terms of water provision, and yet today one in four people in Jordan is a Syrian refugee. You know, helping these countries is hugely the right thing to do, but it's hugely in our national interest. Okay, so some more questions. We've got one there and one there and one here by one. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Molly Anders, the UK correspondent for DevX. Um, today, you know, I think we've got the news now that President Trump is likely to pull out of the climate deal, the Paris Climate Agreement. Can you talk about what your parties would or could do to compensate for that loss in terms of um, energy production and making up for that, please? Dirk Tevelde from the ODI. Um, I want to talk about the importance of trade for development. Um, and giving aid is one thing the UK can do to help countries to trade. Um, so, for example, aid for trade is an important component of, of, um, uh, of aid, um, reducing trade costs in developing countries, which is good for, uh, for the countries um, in, 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 uh, mm -hmm. in Africa uh, and other countries. But another thing that the UK can do is to provide access to um, to trade for the poorest countries so access in the uk and if uh, and, w and when the uk is leaving um, the eu um, then the uk will need to think about trade access and providing trade access now the manifestos at the moment um, do not all guarantee uh, mm -hmm. duty-free quota-free access to least developed countries and small and vulnerable economies uh, maybe you, you now have the chance to clarify your manifestos mm -hmm. and basically to say whether you would be willing to uh, provide duty-free, quota-free access to at least the poorest countries yeah. um, and Thanks. perhaps Thanks. available countries as well. Yeah, that's great. We have a... Yeah. Um, Amanda Kay from The One Campaign. Uh, my question is mainly for Andrew Mitchell, but I'd also be interested in what everyone else has to say. Um, on your article that you wrote that was... At today, I thought that something that was potentially missing was consideration of international humanitarian law and humanitarian principles, particularly those for neutrality and impartiality. How do you think the military can maintain international humanitarian law and the principles in these situations, especially when we also provide arms and personnel to a particular side in many of these conflicts? Just to add to that quickly, um, it's not just the morality, it's also about ensuring the safety of aid workers. Their safety depends on perceived neutrality and impartiality and, hum and humanitarian corridors for emergency aid are opened up because of this. Um, thanks. Okay, great. 
So, um, Ray Collins, maybe just on the trade issue, first of all, because your manifesto, you do actually mention least de developed countries uh, in relation to trade. Yes, I was going to say that. Uh, I thought you were saying we didn't mention it, but I mean... Not all. <laughs> Not all. That would be Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I mean, one of the uh, concerns I have in terms of... I mean, I have many concerns over the way the Brexit negotiations will be, is this idea of, of free trade uh, being simply the panacea for, you know, uh, the solution to everything. And, of course, free trade has lifted people, countries, you know, has developed economies and lifted people out of poverty. I accept that. But one of the problems, and we've experienced it with the EPAs and the U European Union's negotiated agreements, is that African countries themselves fear access to their markets would undermine the development of their uh, capability to trade. And that's why I think we still need to assert very strongly that these countries need more than simply free trade agreements, which you seem to hear from other politicians, that we do need to actually protect and, uh, and, and, and develop. Uh, it's not simply saying uh, we're going to send... Uh, all our goods into our country and you can send them to us. Africa is unique in that, those circumstances. And I think as we move forward in Brexit, we need to, to, to be very clear about that. Can I just say on the humanitarian law aspect, I think one of the problems, and we've raised this in Parliament, is that you know when there is evidence, this government seems to be... Uh, unable to act. And I think that's one of the concerns. It's that UN gathering evidence and we don't say that it's uh, clear. In fact, we say it's the responsibility of the government itself to gather the evidence. And there's a in relation to what government are you talking about? Yemen. Yemen in particular, where there you know, has been very clear uh, allegations of breaches of humanitarian law. Uh, by all sides, absolutely. Uh, but they're not using, all sides are not using British weapons. Okay, so Shashian, on, on the trade issue, um, important to guarantee preferences uh, um, for the developing world uh, from a Lib Dem perspective? Um, yes, of course it is. And um, But what I really want to... Um, uh, expand on here really about trade is that when we leave the EU we will the government is going to be working extremely hard to create new trade deals and develop new markets and all the indications are is that the Commonwealth is going to be um, well in their sights they already have good relationships um, within with heads of governments etc and um, historically um, so what's going to be really important is that we put in place uh, that the government recognises that these are often fragile states, often poor rural communities, and for example, trade on wood and timber. Um, the Commonwealth countries have a fifth of the world's forests within them. Uh, it's 810 million hectares, and those forests provide livelihoods for the rural poor in those countries. And so any trade deal um, has to take account of that and to make sure that it's done in a sustainable way. The 
and protecting the natural environment in developing countries is really going to be, I think, of fundamental importance. And I would have liked, I'm sorry, Andrew, to keep, I feel as I'm always attacking you. I know it's not you. Uh, but I do wish the Conservative well, I'm not feeling, Party... I'm not feeling terribly attacked. So. You're not? Okay. <laughs> All right, that's fine. That's good. But I do wish yes. that the Conservative, your government or the Conservative Party in their manifesto had not omitted the ivory ban that was in the previous one. I think that's a real shame. Okay, so just before we come to Andrew, Patrick, um, in your manifesto, you do actually talk about trade agreements, but in the context yeah. of prioritising poverty reduction? Yes, I mean, we've said, you know, we will urge the UK government to develop a trade and development policy that outlines how the UK will support development as part of its trade uh, with developing countries. And we, we go on to talk about uh, commitments the Scottish government has already made uh, to considering human rights implications in terms of uh, engagement with other countries and businesses and uh, are working with uh, Amnesty International to put some of those commitments into practice. Um, there is, you know, there's an opportunity now uh, with, um, uh, or one of, the, one, of the, one of the opportunities, if there is to be new trade negotiations, um, to, to engage early doors with uh, developing countries because, uh, the, the terms could potentially be a, a little bit quicker, a little bit easier to negotiate and uh, precisely to put these opportunities um, at the at the heart of those negotiations. And to that extent, I would uh, agree with what we've, we've heard from the, the Labour and, and Lib Dem spokespeople so far. Um, on the other points, and, and it ties in uh, precisely to this point about, about climate change as well, that, that, that these deals should be climate friendly. I mean, if Trump pulls out of Paris and he's, you know, the final announcement hasn't yet been made, I think, first of all, we need to remember that lots of the individual states in America are remaining committed to those targets, and that's important. Um, and uh, but, but it does mean that, that other countries need to continue to, to step up, and the Scottish government is committed to, uh, and we have indeed met 100% of our electricity use um, by uh, renewable energy development. Um, we were quite concerned about the removal of, of some of the subsidies for a, a carbon, uh, you know, um, renewable energy resources and generation under the, the last two years of the the, uh, the Conservative government. Um, and uh, yeah, the point about a, a humanitarian law, I would, I would agree as well with the, the responses that have already been made. It's absolutely vital that that's, that's properly respected. So I do want us to go back into the climate change issue because that's that's a big one. But just on the trade trade issue at the moment, Andrew, I mean, a lot in the manifesto actually about trade and global trade and new partners, reinvigorating relationships with the Commonwealth and so on, but not much in the way of promising um, that the same kind of guarantees as exist now will continue in a post-Brexit world. Well, I think that uh, there are huge opportunities now on trade. And one of the things that I think my party has been successful in weaving into the debate is that the private sector is not the enemy of development, it's the engine of development. You know, how do the poorest people in the world lift themselves out of poverty? Same as in any country, it's by being economically active, by, by having a, a job. And actually, you know, earlier on mention was made of CDC. CDC is now responsible for the employment in decent conditions of millions of people in the poor world. And tax is being paid from investments which CDC make into their treasuries. Whether it's always spent well is another matter, but the point is it's generating income to pay for public services. So I think the trade and private sector debate has changed a lot. 
Now, uh, the, the, I agree with what Patrick was saying about this. And actually, we set up a fund, not very well known, though people in this room will know about it, uh, which was designed specifically to help poor countries negotiate decent trade agreements. And the reason we set it up was because I went uh, with someone from Christian Aid, actually, to Geneva to try and get my head around how the WTA worked. And what I saw there was that the American delegation had hundreds of lawyers, accountants, brilliant people to argue their point of view. But one African country had one lady with a typewriter to do it. And I thought this was a very unequal uh, match of arms. And it was therefore essential that we tried to help countries to negotiate good trade deals. Because, of course, a good trade deal is not an unequal one. It's one where both sides are happy. Um, and I think I hope you will accept that that is testament to the government's good intentions, not on negotiating trade deals which are purely for Britain's advantage, but negotiating decent trade deals, which, as we well know, enrich everyone, rich and poor alike. So just before we go on to the climate change, I just wondered, Dirk, are you reassured by what you've heard? Um, what, what is your snap take um, on that? I mean, to, to some extent. Uh, I mean, I think I mean I think it's important to think about trade, but what I I cannot understand is why um, the, all the parties now cannot say that after the event of Brexit, we will guarantee duty-free quota-free access to the poorest countries okay. as a starting point. And then you can then build on that. You can then uh, go into the trade and services. You can, uh, you can think around yep. agreements there. You Great. can think about okay. other countries. Yep. But as a starting point, yep. I think that's... Can you do that as a starting point? I, th I think we've been neuralgic about conceding points. But, I mean, you know, if you're asking me, I would have thought that would be one of the first things that we would do. Okay, great. So I don't want to lose the climate change piece because it is very important. Ray, on climate change, um, where is your party on this and pursuing the well, Paris Agreement? It, uh, it's in the manifesto and our commitment to it. And I think uh, one of the things about uh, climate change is that, you know, the evidence is there every day and the increase in... Uh, the humanitarian, you know, they're not all man-made, they're not all wars in terms of uh, the crises that we see. And, you know, it's the evidence that climate change is affecting uh, countries is, is there. And one of the things that uh, we have uh, sort of, not only do we have a responsibility to ensure that we meet and maintain those targets, and I agree with Patrick, uh, but we also have a responsibility to support those countries to mitigate against the worst aspects of it. Flooding and other humanitarian crises, uh, you know, and, and, you know, there are mechanisms now, the Sendai Agreement and things like that we can put in place. We have the knowledge and the ability, particularly in DFID, to address these issues. And I don't want that to be forgotten uh, in this debate. And there is also a sense that if Trump does formally announce in the next few days that the US will pull out of the Paris Agreement. That is not the end of the Paris Accord. If anything, it should reinvigorate the rest of the international community to maintain that agenda even more strongly. Yes, climate change is one of the major challenges facing the developing world. Climate change is an issue about water, either too little water, and we have desertification, which causes the famines that we're seeing in East Africa, too much water, we have the issue of flooding, 
and landslide uh, mudslides. So it's working to mitigate those effects and try and build resilience up front into the communities that we know are going to be affected. To put in place emergency response and training for local emergency response. Um, preventive measures uh, in terms of access to health. Um, in when you're faced with drought, we need storage facilities. People know, the people in the region often know what's happening to their climate and how long they have, and they will know that they need to put food away, but they don't have the facilities in which to store the food. So those are things that we can help with, and I think that's uh, what we have to do in terms of climate change. I agree uh, with um, Ray here that, we, that it isn't the end of the Paris Accord by any means if America doesn't um, sign up. I think the world is prepared for the worst that Trump can do, and I think they will just laugh at him and just get on with it. In any case, very much like um, the response to him that we saw um, at the G7 this weekend, um, nobody is going to take him terribly seriously, and they will just continue in any case to do what they want to do. But I think what we must do is to really work with the developing countries and uh, build in those and uh, uh, build in that element of resilience so that people can cope with it. So, Patrick, right. I just wanted to bring you back in. You talked about the staunch support for the, by the SNP for action on climate change, but there's also staunch support in your manifesto for the oil and gas industry. Don't those two mm. things cut across each other? Well, no, they, 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 they don't have to. Um, you know, we, the, the Scottish government has been incredibly strong in promoting renewable energy. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the developments that have gone on up in the... the uh, North Coast in terms of wave power development. The, as I say, we met 100% of our renewable, uh, of, our, of our energy needs uh, in recent years from renewable energy. Um, but oil, oil and gas continues to be an important sector, not just for, for Scotland, but the UK uh, as a whole. Um, but we are on a track to continue to reduce our carbon emissions, and we have some of the most, and have met some of the most ambitious uh, carbon reduction targets um, anywhere in the world. Great. Andrew Mitchell, on climate change, but also picking up this point in Yemen, actually, because interestingly, I think uh, in the other party manifestos, there's a clear uh, call for stopping trade with arms sales to Saudi Arabia. That's not on the con Conservative manifesto. Um, wh why is that? Well, let, let me come back to that from a climate change oh. point. I mean, on, on climate change, uh, I think there's a pretty broad consensus. I mean, I would say two things. Firstly, it will be a very retrograde step if, if uh, President Trump does decide to disavow the Paris Agreement. There are other members of the Trump family who think he shouldn't. We must hope that their advice uh, prevails. And it's noteworthy that China has, is making enormous progress in this area. And China is really driving the climate change um, agenda. And the only other thing I would say on climate change is that Britain uh, has really led on a lot of these things. You know, we have put billions of pounds of, of taxpayers' money into tackling, mitigating climate change. But we don't explain it. And the reason we don't explain it is because we're terrified the Daily Mail will find out how much we're spending on this of taxpayers' money. But the truth is, it is going to transform the lives of 
of children and grandchildren all around the world because of British leadership in this area of climate change. Now, on the very good question from the lady from One, uh, of which I am an ambassador, I hasten to add, with, with David Miliband. So I hope my article hasn't offended you too much. I will put absolutely at the top of everything respect for international humanitarian law. And you know, I have called repeatedly and in quite strong terms for the international humanitarian actors to be respected and given unfettered access in Syria, where Russia has ridden roughshod over the international laws, has done to the UN what the Germans and the Italians did to the League of Nations in the 1930s. This is terribly dangerous. So the primacy of international humanitarian law, of international law generally, I think is very important. And in the last election, I made clear in my own manifesto to my constituents that I would never vote to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights, which at one point appeared to be the policy of my own party, because international humanitarian law is absolutely vital for everything that we want to do, and we need to boost it. Now, on Yemen, I am, I think, the only European politician who's been into the Yemen in the last three years, and I can assure you I shall not be going back while things uh, continue as they are at, at the moment. Uh, Yemen is an absolute disgrace because there's going to be a famine in Yemen, and we are, I'm afraid, complicit as a country in, in the blockade of that country. Uh, Yemen is blockaded by air land and sea by the Saudi coalition, and we are loosely part of that coalition. On the weaponry, it is true in very different circumstances that Britain in 1986 sold cluster weapons, cluster munitions to the Saudis. We have now obtained agreement from the Saudis. They will not use those weapons. They, they should not be used. They, they were never invented for the purpose which they have been used uh, in attacking uh, civilians. And uh, I profoundly hope that those munitions will not be used again. I am, I, am, I, am not, I am not in favour of an arms, and it's not a, a, an easy position, I am not in favour of Britain unilaterally imposing an arms embargo on Saudi. Why? Firstly, because Saudi will get the weapons anyway. We have to make sure that there's peace between the Yemenis and the Saudis, and Britain is in a unique position to help negotiate that peace. So I don't think calling for, for Britain to have an arms embargo at this point would be particularly uh, helpful. And secondly, I, am, I, am, I don't think it's very attractive for British politicians to try and suck up to the media by waiving their moral consciences at the expense of thousands of jobs in the north of England, I think the important thing is to lay down very strict rules and laws for the export of weapons, and Britain has one of the tightest regimes in the world. Okay, so we're just in the last uh, uh, 10 minutes or so of the debate, so I want to pick up two questions online. Um, first of all, one from Alyssa at a Youth Stop Aids, who would like to know how the political parties are prioritising HIV, which is the biggest killer of women of a reproductive age and the second biggest killer of adolescents. And the second one from uh, our ODI researcher, David Booth, who's actually got a question which a couple of you mentioned in, in your initial opening statements. How can we have a more vigorous defence of the aid programme in the face of sceptical public, and to quote David, a scurrilous press, 
Um, will the parties liberate Diffid from the ban imposed on it a few years ago of doing development education? So one on uh, HIV uh, prioritisation and one on how to um, educate uh, or you know have a more robust defence of aid um, in in the public space. Ray Collins, do you want to pick up on those? Well, I think all of us, uh, all the political parties, are, are one. I mean, I was very pleased with the government's commitment to the replenishment of the global fund, uh, and I think that is going to be an important part of the battle uh, uh, against AIDS and HIV. I think. You know, it's too often it's a, a tale of two worlds here, uh, and we're not actually sort of communicating just how devastating HIV and AIDS still remains in terms of uh, uh, world health. And of course, it's not just impacting on uh, uh, you know the individuals and their health; it's impacting on the development of economies, the way that it's affecting. And of course, there's also issues of of uh, cross uh, multiple infection, which you know HIV can contribute to uh, early deaths from TB, and we need to and focus on. Well, I think that's what I was hoping to sort of put in my uh, opening remarks. Our joint commitment to the North Point Seven shouldn't silence the debate. It should be the opposite. We should be strong advocates of it not only in terms of its impact globally, but also its impact uh, with us as, as a nation. And I think we do go, need to keep going out and, and making the case. Uh, sadly, uh, we're not seeing enough of that, uh, and, and we do need to do more. I think our manifesto has made clear, because for me, I mean, I want the debate to be about ensuring sustainability and ensuring that you know aid is not simply about handouts it's about how we empower and enrich the world we live in okay patrick brady your take on that yeah no i i would i would pretty much agree with with all of that um i welcome likewise the investment into uh, the global fund in terms of tackling aids and indeed other uh, preventable diseases there has been huge progress made but we have to make sure that the the momentum continues and that it's not allowed um to back uh, to backslide um, so i think it's important though that that, that the you know that we we make sure that it goes some of that goes back to the use of, of 0.7% that that research and development needs to take place all around the world but the the more that can take place in a you know with with the active engagement of uh, developing countries and places where uh, where these uh, diseases are more prevalent, then then the better. I think I absolutely agree uh, with uh, with what my Labour colleague was saying in terms of development education. The, the Scottish government's international development fund, uh, which incidentally the UK government likes to count towards the zero point seven percent target, uh, includes uh, support for the development education centres in Scotland, and that is a hugely a valuable investment and uh, it would be great to see more of that and I think that is quite a legitimate use if we're wanting to look at yeah, uses of of 0.7%. Mention was made earlier on of the uh, the 0.7% bill. Now one of the reasons that got through Parliament in 2015 was because tens of thousands of constituents up and down the country in response to the NGO campaigns lobbied their MPs to turn up uh, to the, the, the private members bill sittings to get that bill through. Those people must still exist. Uh, you know, so we all, as politicians and as the NGO community, need to make sure 
that we're engaging with them. Um, and you know, at the start of this campaign, uh, Rowan Williams and Bill Gates were deployed um, quite effectively, I think, to remind the bishop's daughter, uh, the, the vicar's daughter, the prime minister, um, of the moral case for 0.7%. But um, we all have a, a duty, I think, to, to make sure that we're communicating the real benefits um, of aid. So, Andrew Mitchell, how do you see off the Daily Mail and also this point of the prioritisation of HIV? Okay, <clears throat> on HIV, I think we're all of, uh, in agreement. I mean, the HIV, the battle against HIV has been very well prosecuted. The Global Fund, which importantly, Britain was part of the team that sorted out the Global Fund because there were problems in the Global Fund, uh, which meant that we could then provide very large amounts of taxpayers' money to take that forward. Dr. Tedros, who was part of the, the turnaround of the Global Fund, now going to be the head of the uh, World Health Organization, an absolutely first-class, excellent choice. And if he can do for the WHO what he did for the Ethiopian health system, that would be a great thing. <clears throat> um, on um, the, uh, the, the, the attack on development, I mean, you know, it's for of you to get involved as well. I set up the ICAI because I argue that Britain is absolutely brilliant at development and, and our leadership around the world is deeply respected. And we should have the self-confidence that when we take the plaudits, we do so quite happily. And when we get it wrong, we put up our hands and we put it right. And that's what the ICAI is about. It's the independent evaluation of, of aid. And uh, um, uh, I think that uh, it's an extraordinary thing that Britain's leadership and involvement and engagement in elevating the social condition of people who live in desperate poverty around the world is, is lauded and respected everywhere apart from in parts of Britain. And uh, I think that we need to do a lot about that. I must just say, because it's been mentioned, that the treatment of what was called the Ethiopian Spice Girls was an absolute and total disgrace. This was a private sector project, which the British taxpayer supported on the basis that we were supporting the private sector and getting a great deal more bang for our buck by supporting it. And it was, it was a travesty. It should have been much more defended. And shame on those British media organizations which bullied ministers into stopping it because it was a great project. And it's made a huge difference to the life of girls in Ethiopia. Uh, and it really, there's one other thing you want to say. No, no, we're running out of time. You can you say that for your... You're letting me off the hook on the domestic education You can say that for your... There's a moment in your closing statement that you can make that point. Shashian. Excellent. Um, I agree with everything that's been said about the fantastic work that Global Fund has been doing, um, HIV, malaria and TB. And, um, and I think all parties have uh, uh, really championed putting more money into research and development of new drugs to fight against the drug resistance for, uh, strains that we're seeing emerging. Um, the only thing I would say is that it, I think it is only the Liberal Democrats who want, who have li who want to license uh, PrEP uh, throughout the UK, and we hope to take that internationally as well. I mean, I think that is going to be really important. To me, it is about prevention, and that's where we really ought to be putting uh, as much uh, uh, resource behind as and, possible. And just one thought on this public support of, for aid? Oh, oh, I mentioned it in my opening speech. It has to be the good news. Let's get out there and tell the good news. I understand there's some good news coming on malaria. Um, Sri Lanka may well soon be free of malaria. Now that is a first and that is a story that we should shout about to the rafters. I think 
We have seen the power of social media ads during this election campaign. I've been amazed at where they've been popping up. And so let's use social media if the press won't do it for us. So just as a wrap up, you now all have two minutes just to finish with your key points um, and finish off your pitches to our room of uh, likely voters here. And we're going in reverse order this time. So it'll be Patrick Grady, Andrew Mitchell, Ray Collins, then uh, Shaz Sheehan. So Patrick, do you want to kick off with your closing statement? We do have our bell going again. Yeah, that's right. Two minutes. Two minutes. Okay, so uh, actually the uh, SNP government has made PrEP available in Scotland and our manifesto commits uh, to calling for that to be rolled out across the UK. I think there has been a, a fair amount of um, consensus among the panel uh, tonight and I hope, and, and there broadly is on international development issues and I really sincerely hope that can continue into uh, the next parliament. There, there was a bit of a wobble from the Conservatives at the start of this campaign when the general election was called and it was pressure from the NGOs, from the other political parties and from some high-profile spokespeople that seemed uh, to make sure the Prime Minister came out in favour of the 0.7% commitment. And if we see the polls narrowing and perhaps the landslide that Theresa May hoped for isn't going to quite materialise, then it will be up to MPs like Andrew uh, to make sure that that pressure is kept on a, on a cross-party basis. Um, it was mentioned earlier on, and I remember one of the first campaigns I was involved with when I worked in the NGO sector was Make Poverty History. And, and what we said then was, uh, is, is still true now, that we are the generation that has the knowledge and the resources uh, to meet the, the, the global goals and to end world poverty in our lifetime. What, what is lacking uh, remains the, the political will. And in the context of Brexit, it is even more important that the UK shows as a global leader on these issues. Um, if there's a, a risk of being seen uh, to be a withdrawing from a, a global uh, union like the like the EU, then being a global leader on development issues is is even more important. That we don't forget uh, our commitment to the poor. And sometimes there's a talk of national interest. Yeah. Um, I don't see how helping poor people uh, build more sustainable and secure futures for themselves and their families can be in anything other than the national interest. And that's what the SNP will continue to fight for okay. in the next parliament. Andrew, your two minutes. Well, first of all, let me reassure Patrick that there was no wobble by the uh, vicar's daughter, as I think he called the Prime Minister. It was the first thing she announced in this election, the first Conservative commitment was to the 0.7. I'm very proud that uh, she did that. Um, we do face huge challenges on international development. I think that it, it is a... a terrible thing that today we face four famines in the 21st century. The idea that children can die from starvation, absolutely appalling. So we do face these very major challenges, but we have also made tremendous progress. We've been talking about HIV AIDS and other areas. We have made tremendous progress and we must go on doing so. And I pay tribute to both ODI and Bond who've hosted tonight, both of whom I think when I was Secretary of State got larger accountable grants to take forward the research which they, they do, which is very important as we bear down on all these problems. I'll end with just two points. The first is that uh, we must remember that it is conflict, above all, which condemns people to these dreadful conditions. And tackling conflict, stopping it starting, once it's over, reconciling people and ending it is incredibly important. And finally, on a note where I shall uh, uh, lose a great deal of support in this room if I had it when it started, which is on the domestic education, which uh, Patrick wants us to fund. I'm opposed to that. Indeed, I stopped all of it that I could uh, do when I was Secretary of State because the development budget is meant to be spent on educating 
the poorest people in the world and not on education in Scotland or in, in Britain. So I do not think it's a good use of development spending. So on that point, Patrick, I'm afraid I must disagree. Okay, Rick Well, I, I just want to end on a couple of points. I mean, I think global tax agreement is actually a key priority because if we're to end uh, a dependency, we need to ensure that we have a global fair taxation system. Because in this country, people got really angry when they read that Starbucks paid no tax, yet was earning billions of pounds. Yet that happens every day in many countries in Africa. And we need to get that anger focused there. And that's why I think a fair taxation system. And I want to also end on about how we empower civil society. Because we know civil society uh, is an important ingredient of democracy. It isn't just about electing a president once every four years. It is about the checks and balances in the system and how we ensure sustainability. We will never change the position of women globally unless we actually empower and support women's organisations. And that's what I want to do. And I want to finish quickly on trade unions because support for trade unions in development work is actually quite critical in changing attitudes in Africa. So we might support trade unions in this country, but if they're working in the global context, which actually they've done a lot in places like uh, Bangladesh in changing working conditions there. Okay, I want to pick up on the role that women play in development. And I think it's well documented, reams and reams of research, that the empowerment, the economic empowerment of women is really the key to achieving what I think is one of the, uh, is the most important of the sustainable development goals, and that is to leave no one behind. Because it's when women are in charge of the finances of the household that we see children looked after well, that we see the elderly looked after well, and that we see vulnerable, disabled people looked after well. So I think that that is really key, um, key really to obtaining those goals that we are all seeking. And that's why I was so angry uh, about the way the Yenya project was treated. The Ethiopian Spice Girls, as they were dubbed, had a phenomenal reach into Ethiopia in all the communities in Ethiopia. Um, Okay, um, so you're just well, at the okay. limit of your two minutes. Okay, so what I'd say is that um, popular culture is fantastic. It was an innovative project, and that innovation is something that DFID is uh, well known for and, um, and shows leadership in, and I think that leadership is well respected. And we need that reach um, of soft power and innovative thinking if we're going to move the agenda forward. Brilliant. Thank you very much all for your thoughts. Now I'm going to hand over to Tamsin Barton, uh, Chief Exec of Bond, to close us out with a few of her thoughts about what she's heard here tonight. Thank you very much, Isabel. And thanks to everybody who's come today. It's great to have a full house. I think everybody here really cares about development. And I think it's been enormously refreshing to have a discussion in the election context, which is all about development. I have to say, in my local hustings, uh, it didn't come up a great deal. In fact, there was only a reference to it by one party, a party with no representation in Parliament, 
and the only thing that it said was aid spending should be cut. Uh, so I'm very glad it's been a very different <laughs> sort of evening. Uh, and what was actually very striking is indeed the high level of consensus that there, there is across the parties represented here. In particular, as you've heard, there has been a consensus, there is now a consensus on the 0.7% of GNI. We heard a little bit more about that. But the really key thing I think we would all say at this point is how will that money be spent? And I can't possibly summarize the incredibly rich debate that we've had and the brilliant remarks of the speakers and that commitment that shines through from all of them to the cause. So I'm just going to pick up one thing that they each said about one issue of the moment, which is exactly how it's spent, which is what sounds like the technical debate on the aid rules, uh, if I may, because I think it was quite an interesting gloss on what you can see in the very excellent ODI pamphlet, uh, which I'd suggest you all look at to, to compare the, the party's views. So what you heard this evening from Baroness Sheehan on this point was that the Liberal Democrats would be against any change in the OECD rules which would reduce the pro-poor focus. What you heard from Lord Collins was that Labour would be worried about changing the rules, but he did say that there may be a case for tweaking them. Patrick Grady said that only multilateral change would be acceptable to the SNP. And Andrew Mitchell said that it was important to protect the proper use of aid, but he warned that if the development community were to reject any change, there was a potential for the system to break. And he also said that he thought unilateral change was unlikely. So I think that's quite an interesting set of takeaways on just the point of how aid is spent. So that's my attempt at summary. Now I move on to my real job, which is to finish the thanks apart from to you, the audience. I need to thank ODI and, of course, its wonderful new CEO to return the compliments, Alex Tier, for hosting. Uh, and I need to thank Ishbel for her excellent uh, uh, emceeing of proceedings and keeping everybody to time. But most of all, perhaps, for the hardest work, I need to thank... Joe, Hannah, and Ali. Uh, I think you've done a lot of work in preparation for this. So thank you very much to you. Last but not least, I need to thank the speakers who've given up election time. Some of you perhaps with a more immediate interest in your seats, but nevertheless, you're all giving up your time, which could be spent on broader election issues. Whichever party is elected to government, of course, Bond and its members and associate members like ODI I'm sure that we will be continuing to work to ensure that the focus in its development policy and action will be firmly on reducing poverty and inequality and achieving the sustainable development goals. So thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Music